0: Pitch swing and a drive deep to right field, way up there, way out of here. Goodbye, baseball. Eight strikeouts for the king tonight and make it twenty three consecutive scoreless innings for the strike three called on the outside corner, and there it is.
1: It's time for the Seattle Mariners Baseball Podcast.
0: Kyle Seeger, that just happened. Thank you very much.
1: Now here's your host, Gary Hill.
2: And welcome back to the Seattle Mariners baseball podcast. Gary Hill back with you. Thanks so much for being here once again. And sorry about the lateness of when this got posted. It's been kind of an inconsistent week. So I apologize for that. Next week, we'll get back to normal, normal posting times. But it's just kind of a weird week altogether. So uh, again, I'm kind of out and about. So I don't have a lot of time for the recap, but we'll get into it a little bit. I guess not a huge surprise yesterday ended up the way it did with the Mariners and Tampa Bay, two of the well, they hit the most home runs in baseball uh, them in Baltimore so not a surprise that we saw a ton of long balls yesterday. Unfortunate for the Mariners, they had the lead they couldn't quite hold it as Tampa Bay storms back, they take a late lead First pitch from Vincent, swung on and driven deep to left center field Going back as Ioki.
3: Look it up, and we got a tie ball game. Evan Longoria with his 16th homer. RBIs 38-39-40. Score tied at 7.
2: And of course, the biggest story out of the game was Tywon Walker, who started great.
0: The windup and the 0-2 pitch fastball. Strike three called, and he got him looking with a fastball on the outside corner. That is four strikeouts in a row. Holy smokes! What a start by Walker. Four up, four down via the strikeout route.
4: But
2: ended up hurt.
4: It's not his Achilles. It's like a tendon or something that runs on the back side of his foot. Uh, but you know, just talking to our training staff, um, you know, he's got some tendonitis in there, and obviously aggravated on the the comebacker play. Uh, but you know, right now, uh, where we are, hopeful he's going to make his next start. But you know, we'll see how he is over the next couple of days.
5: Is that something you felt earlier
4: uh no no not that I'm aware of uh, obviously he came out he's throwing the ball really good early uh, it was pretty obvious after that play he wasn't quite right had a hard time you know driving off his back foot down the hill and you know stuff back I mean, he tried to gut it out and stay in there uh, as long as he could but you could see there was something that wasn't right so just thought it was a chance we just needed to make a change and you know that's all we did
5: Vincent's a guy that doesn't walk many people in the walk to Miller, was it a hard um, thing to maybe figure out where that zone was tonight?
4: Oh, you know, it it was a longer at bat, you know, and he was trying to work Brad, you know, Miller carefully, but, you know, that was obviously what hurt, and, you know, Longario went up there looking for a pitch, and you know, he got it, so uh, you know, we had a lot of opportunities tonight uh, to score more runs than we actually did. Mm -hmm. Uh, We didn't take advantage of everything. Uh, Their guy hung in there, and to be the difference is that you know, we had some up there, but just didn't get quit, quite enough. Scott, what do you take away from this? When you what's the first thing that when you
6: leave here tonight that eats says- that?
4: Oh, I think you know, the, those games, you know, in, in our league, there's a lot of games that are run, won, or lost in the sixth, seventh inning, and, and trying to get uh, through those innings. Um, and and uh, you know Nick Vincent's done a really nice job for us this year. Uh, you know he, he made a pitch. It wasn't a horrible pitch, but it was certainly one that Longoria was looking at. I guess you know if you play through that inning, you know then the nine-hole hitter gets a base hit and then the walk. Uh, it's, it's the home run of, <laughs> it's different if it's solo and not a three-run. So, uh, but that and, and I think you know our opportunities to score more runs. You know we, we probably should have scored double digits tonight, but. So the
2: Ams will try and get back at Tampa Bay today. Nathan Carnes will take the mound, 4-10 first pitch. He'll go against Drew Smiley, who has struggled, a lefty on the hill. And the Mariners have hit lefties, especially with the long ball this year. And then Thursday – this is going to be a fun matchup, 10-10. James Paxton will take the hill, and he's going to go into Blake Snell, local product, taking the ball for Tampa Bay, sensational young arm. He's 1-0 with a 1.80 ERA. He's appeared in the big leagues a couple of times this year, but he's getting the spot start for the Rays on Thursday. So that's a game I'm very much looking forward to. Mariners still a chance to try and take this series, now 34-29, but looking to bounce back today behind Nathan Carnes. Well there you go. now you're ready for today. Here's what we're gonna do. Josh Kearns has another tremendous feature so we're gonna hand it off to him in just a minute or so. Jesse Smith, a conversation with him about the shift, which is really really good. kind of an inside look at what the Mariners do. When it comes to the shift also Rick Riz a great conversation with Mel Stottlemyre and I'm really interested in for people out there that are coaching young kids he talks a little bit about how he coaches his own kids in terms of when they start throwing the breaking ball that sort of thing I found it to be a pretty fascinating conversation so first things
7: first. Here is Josh Kearns. When you walk into the Mariner's team store, you can't help but be overwhelmed by the amount of stuff, especially the massive wall of caps in every color, shape, and style.
5: I can't even tell you how many styles I have. And I bring in new styles, six new styles of fashion fitted every month. So every time you come in here, you will hopefully find something new that you haven't seen before.
7: Julie McGilvray is the Mariner's director of merchandise. You could call her the Michelangelo of merch. Her canvas the racks of the team store.
5: We try really hard to be different. We need to, we want to have something for everyone, for every age group. We want the season ticket holders to come to a game and find something that they didn't know they needed because they come to games all the time.
7: When it comes to just caps, the fans here are crazy.
5: We sold 121,000 caps last year. 90 plus thousand of them were just men's alone. The rest were women's kids and child infant.
7: And it's not just caps. Ever since she came from the Bon Marche back in the late 90s, you kids ask your parents what that is. Julie's been pushing fashion forward.
5: I brought in a lot of women's apparel. I think I was, the Yankees were the first team and I was the second team to bring in a pink cap. So we put a pink cap on the floor and everyone thought I was a little crazy and it was a bestseller right away and then it took off from there. So then I went to Nike and said, I need color. I can't just, I don't wanna just have put current colors on. I want purple and pink and some metallic and they were nervous to do that too.
7: And they get a lot more hits than misses. Julian and her buyers travel the country working with the various official suppliers to find unique styles and offerings, often customizing them and designing different things for the unique tastes of the Northwest.
5: Well, I'd like to have as much as I can here that you can't find anywhere else. Our player tees are the only player tees with a sleeve patch, for instance. Um, We put a basic exclusive t-shirt on the floor that is our own design every year that you can only find here at the Mariners team store.
7: But the biggest sellers are still the authentic jerseys.
5: Felix is number one selling, and then Cruz and Cano are close and Seager, and then right now because of Griffey, he's over the top because of Hall of Fame.
7: That's one of the easy parts of the job, but Julie and her team also have to try and decide which newer players get a spot on the racks as well.
5: I just ordered Martin t-shirts and jerseys. They're not here yet. Marte is here. He even sold when he was on the DL, and he's back now and Deho Lee is the most exciting fun one right now to buy I brought in his little test of 144 and sold I had 35 left at the end of the homestand, so I had to go back to the well right away and reorder him.
7: Unfortunately, things don't always work out.
5: If they get hurt or they get traded, then it's over. And then I have to mark them in half, hopefully sell them as fast as I can in the markdown price and move on.
7: Suffice it to say, you can get a Montero or an Ackley or Rodney jersey for a low, low price these days. But overall, just look around the ballpark or anywhere around town, and you can see Julie pretty much has her finger and her eye on the pulse of fashion.
5: When I go to games, it's hard for me to watch the game sometimes. I spend the whole time looking at the crowd and seeing where my product is and who bought what and what, how it looks and how it fits. And it's fun to work in the store and sell to the customer and see what they purchase and what they pick out. And, and then when I'm not here, when I see my product out on the, somewhere else in the mall or at the movie theater or out to dinner, that's even better.
7: I'm Josh Gerns reporting for the Mariners Sunday Magazine. And now the conversation with Jesse Smith on shifts.
2: Jesse, we've seen it all year long. We've seen the, the shifts on the increase for the Seattle Mariners. And you look at the numbers, the Mariners have been at or towards the top and defensive runs saved. Simply put, they've been better than most and one of the best clubs this year at executing the shift. Now, when we talk about shift, it's so much different now than what it used to be. Left-handed pull hitter, you don't just stick another guy on the right side of the infield. There's so much more that goes into it. What goes into putting the shifts together for the front
6: office? Thanks for having me, Gary. Like you said, there's, there's a lot of factors. Uh, we're, the first thing we're doing is we're starting with the batter and what they've done against uh, that's that handedness of pitching, left-handed versus right-handed. And we're breaking it down. We break the field into a bunch of segments. So like you said, it's not just pole or opposite field, because really the shift can work if they hit it as opposite field as well sometimes. And we're looking at how frequently they hit it to these segments, as well as how hard they hit it when it goes there. And then, you know, at what angles the ball is leaving. So vertical angle, you know, like guys will generally pull more on the ground and uh, hit more fly balls opposite field. So sometimes the guy might not really seem like he's a dead red pole hitter, but in terms of his ground ball spray, it might warrant a shift. Uh, we're also looking at the pitcher on the mound, of course, and, uh, you know, what, what, what kind of pitches they're throwing, what's their arsenal. Certainly velocity is harder to pull. Uh, fastballs are harder to pull. Outside pitches are less likely to be pulled. So, if we're looking at pitcher tendencies, if we have a guy who's throwing 99 on the outside corner with regularity, you know, we're probably going to shy away from shifting there. And you might have actually seen that with James Paxton's last start. I think there were several situations where we might have normally recommended a shift, even with James Paxton, but he was throwing so much harder than <laughs> usual that. Uh, and he was going so well that the coaching staff might have shied away there, and that's probably a good decision.
2: How do you measure whether the shift is working?
6: Right. So we spend a lot of time on that very question, and there's a lot of ways to cut it up. Uh, you know, there are. Way, you know, we want to look at it really in depth uh, for the nerds like myself, and we also want to sort of get more uh, a broader picture that we can pass down to the coaches and the players. Uh, and we want to gauge it in all sorts of ways. I think to start with, what we do is very simple. We just, we say, imagine if we were playing a traditional straight-up alignment, which you see less and less in the game. It's the traditional straight-up might have to be redefined, but that's, that's an <laughs> aside. Uh, so we, we try to imagine if the fielders had been positioned traditional straight-up. You know, we've got no information on the hitters whatsoever, so you just, you put them where they've always gone. And and from there, it becomes a lot easier. Certainly, using like the Statcast tools we have available to us, we can just measure how far we think an infielder, an average infielder, or even our infielders, could have ranged uh, to get a ball. And we can assign an expected value uh, to every ground ball based on where the fielders were. And doing so, combined with some video review, because it's still a work in progress. These are all this is all very new information. Uh, we can get an idea of the odds of it being a hit. Sometimes it's very clear, but other times, you know, we'll have to assign a probability like, well, if they'd been straight up, that's maybe a 50-50 ball, but uh, in the shift, you know, it was an 80-20 ball. And if they made, you know, and then you also have to talk about how much of that credit goes to the fielders. Like we made it put them a little bit closer, but they also made an amazing play. So we're not going to say the shift saved a hit. We're going to say, the shift put the fielder in a position to make a great play that saved the hit. So, you know, the shift had some positive impact and, uh, parsing it out to all the right pieces is a complex process.
2: How important is it for what you do, what the front office does to be on the same page with the coaching staff and then down to the players as just one collective.
6: It is absolutely critical to everything that we're doing. Uh, if the coaching staff is not buying in to the information we're sending down, then it's not going to get anywhere with the players because the players look to the coaches to yeah, for to guide it for guidance and to reaffirm that you know the data is worth trusting. Uh, so you have to get that trust to the coaches, and then the coaches can get generate that buy-in from the players, and more so executing the shifts in real time during the game is not an easy task. So you, just, you have to have the coaches completely on board, knowing where everyone's going to go with basically what we call our playbook, which uh, in large part is generated by them uh, in order to execute uh, in a live situation.
2: So, for example ground ball gets hit to Kano, who's in short right field. He throws the runner out of first base. What do you do? A little fist bump to yourself? A big smile? What happens when you see a play like that in the shift?
6: Oh, there's a lot of fist bumping <laughs> that goes on. Uh, those those hard line drives, I think, where it's no question it would have been a hit. It's like, I think for me, the best possible is Kano in, the, in short right field, a line drive right to him because, you know, that's That's a hit in years past.
2: Well, Jesse, thanks for the insight. We really appreciate it. Thanks, Gary. And here's Rick with Mel Stottlemyre, Jr., Mariners pitching coach.
0: Doing a great job with his pitching staff all season long. That ERA, one of the best in all of baseball, Mel. But I want to talk to you about pitching and and geared toward kids. When a a kid comes up to you and says, Mr. Stottlemyre, I want to be a pitcher, like you probably did with your dad, who was a great pitcher for the New York Yankees. Where do you start talking about pitching with a kid?
1: First thing I do is I make sure they have a really good psychologist, just to start out with. <laughs> the, the, the pitching thing is, is such a specialty, and not everybody knows how to do it or teach it. But the first thing that I do with young kids is you know I, I teach them to throw the ball with their legs, just, just like an infielder. I remember when I started pitching, my dad used to, uh, at, a, at a young age, I think at about seven, he used to roll my brother and I ground balls, and he would teach us how to use our legs mm-hmm and to try to stay natural with, with our arm and try to find out what our slot was. Before he did that, he would check our grip. And uh, the, the grip is, is something that, uh, it, it's, it gets looked past a lot with young kids. You know, the hands are so small and a lot of kids want to throw the ball with two fingers. And so to, to make sure that you had a gap in between the, the baseball and the hands and the thumb underneath the ball, and, and just teach a kid to, to, to stay natural with this arm. But you, you do that by rolling them in baseball and trying to find out a slot. But there's lots of other little things you can get into, you know, the direction of it, uh, getting to a balance point over the rubber with some of the things that my dad talked to us about. And even as we were become major leaguers, uh, you know, we a, a little term, a little phrase that he gave us, he talked because Todd and I like to hunt, and we still do, but we, he talked about our front shoulder being our our gun barrel, and the backside being our gun sights, our scope, yeah. and to make sure that as we go out towards the plate that the, the scope and the barrel are lined up towards your towards your catcher.
0: How do you teach control with each and every one of your pitches?
1: Well, there's command and there's control. Uh, at this level, guys need to have command. You know, when they, when they miss, uh, their misses are on the big part of the plate, and those are mistakes, and those tend to leave the yard, and we get <laughs> to ask for a new baseball, but... Uh, you know, I mean, Rick, that, that takes time. I think the biggest thing is to get our catchers to give give the young pitchers the plate to work with, You use all 17 inches. You know, to a- ask a young kid to try to thread the needle or throw to a perfect spot, it's asking too much. So a lot of times young catchers will steer pitchers away from the zone or they'll ask them to throw perfect pitches. And I like to let the—you know set the catcher on the big part of the plate. We use the phrase, expand the zone. To teach young kids the value of getting in good counts, as an example, strike one versus ball one, is pivotal. That part is the approach, and it's something that doesn't go away even at this level we talk to our guys about. So just to get them to attack, to get getting good counts, once they're in good counts to through time and experience, learn how to finish hitters. And that takes time, and lots of time and lots of practice.
0: Mel, hitters have a, a stance, and their swing pitchers have a windup. How do you find out what's comfortable to get that ball going toward home
1: plate? Well, everybody's body is built differently and their arms work differently. Some guys, when the ball comes out of the glove, they'll take it you know, straight up to the sky. Some of them, their arm path will be back behind them. So the timing mechanism of getting their body and their arm connected together is, is imperative. To keep things simple with young kids, and I did it with my boys, where I started them out from a stretch. Once they got their balance and they became coordinated, we started to implement the wind-up. And there's all different kinds of wind up The important things are to try to build up steam and some rhythm and some athleticism through our delivery and, and to drive at the plate to make sure that we get to a balanced position before we build up that steam. Keep things simple, get them to the balance position is, is the most important. Visiting
0: with Mel Sotomayor Jr. here on Rick Steps. Mel, final question, and it's probably different
1: for a, a lot of kids, but when should a kid start throwing a curveball? My dad, and, and again, old school, a household where I had a dad as a pitching coach and was a great pitcher, he didn't let Todd allow us to throw breaking balls until we were 16 and 17 years old. In this day and age, that's it's unheard of because they're all throwing it young. Here's the thing that I tell people. You know, young kids' joints, their tendons and ligaments, their growth plates are, are not developed until a later age to where they're, you know, in the 14- and 15-year-old, they're still growing. And it's not that the breaking ball is, is going to hurt them. Is Not many people know how to teach them to throw it properly, and then they abuse it uh, because young kids at 12, 13, 14 cannot hit breaking balls. So what's the coach do? He puts the old number two down, and we end up throwing 60% breaking balls. And before you know it, the kid hasn't developed his fastball, and he starts to get some unwanted soreness in the elbow, and then he creates bad habit. My youngest son is 15, and I am teaching him a curveball for the first time. And I give the, the coach the responsibility and accountability to let him know that he will throw one per hitter. Choose wisely when to use that pitch.
0: <laughs> and the best advice for any kid, Mel, go out there and just have a good time. Go out and have fun enjoy the game.
1: Man, that, that's something my dad, you know, I mean, Todd and I, we, we had such passion and love for the game, and we just loved to compete. When we got to a point in our careers and, you know, through American Legion where we got real serious and we had some tough days, and, you know, dad always had to had to kind of pull the reins back and have, set us down and talk about, look, this game is supposed to be fun. It, it is a kid's game. The day that I come to the ballpark at the major league level, put my uniform on, uh, it takes me back to my kid days and I have fun. So make sure, you know, by all means, make sure that you you provide a fun atmosphere and environment for your kids so they can enjoy it. Cheney Field, home of the Waldorf Little League, Enjoy Coca-Cola
3: proclaims signs at the entrance to the five small baseball fields with a dirt parking lot in their midst. This is baseball at the bottom line, simple, unadorned economical, every penny counted, but perfectly satisfactory. If you're a kid and you want to play baseball, here it is. But no come on, no frills. A foul ball can reach the railroad tracks. A forest of electrical transformers, the town's power source, looms above the old trees. The infields are hard, baked, dirt full of pebbles, but no rocks or glass. The outfields are splotchy grass, but green. The waist-high cyclone fences surrounding the fields have no fancy distance markers. There are no lights. Get finished by sundown. The chalk scoreboards aren't used. The bleachers are half full when they hold a dozen parents. This is word of mouth baseball. What inning is it? What's a score? Who's winning? A player asks his mother in quick succession. And he's the pitcher. Coach an 11-year-old whose back is barely big enough to contain the uniform words Ken Dixon, Chevrolet, Buick Honda. Somebody's got to help me. Scott just filled my batting helmet with dirt. This is partly baseball, but mostly growing up, mostly one of those few remaining places where everybody gathers to pass on the tribe's collective sense of itself. That's Thomas Boswell's writing from How Life Imitates the World Series. And we'll have more right after this. See
2: you later!